I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. With school funding at an all-time low, schools from around the country have to find innovative ways to educate their kids. We sent Allison Manning to document one such school. Okay, preheat your ovens to 350, then give me a set of push-ups, sit-ups, and crunches. I'm at South Bend, Indiana's Pine Bluff High School, and this is Mrs. Koo's home economics and PE class. She began teaching it last spring. It's not that hard to integrate the two, I suppose. I've gotten used to it. And her students have gotten used to multitasking. All right, those push-ups don't have to be unproductive. Let's put our bread dough on the floor and knead it with your face when you're in the down position. Use your nose to check for lumps. And don't forget your nose hair nets. On the other side of the building is Mr. Jones' wood shop, health and now sophomore English class. This is Mr. Jones' 21st year of teaching wood shop and his second week teaching English and health. All right, now remember to prepare the wood before you saw, and that means sanding. So uh, you've all selected your wood. Okay, grow up, Martinez. Now while you're sanding, take a look at the overhead projector. You'll see the male reproductive system. Uh, now who can point out the vast deference? Uh, yes, yeah, Scott. Uh, it's that long one right there. Very good, Scott. Yes, that is the vast deference. Now who can tell me the uh, vast difference between Bronte's Jane Eyre and, uh, let's see here, uh, uh, Austin's Elizabeth Bennett. Anyone? Can anyone help? Okay, I was hoping you guys could tell me. Uh, all right, well, I guess we'll just go over it again. Uh, put on your protective eyewear and turn to Chapter 2. Perhaps the most surprising class is that of Victor Kredenko, the school's custodian. He came here from Russia only 18 months ago. We spoke with him between classes. Yeah, I am janitor and I teach politics. Uh, I instruct whether or not it's possible to integrate third party into current electoral college and how to mop floor and clean windows. So how is it teaching American students? It is fine. I get much work done. No? I, I have a strong young staff to help empty trash and we have good debate. And hey, 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 Brendan, I'm still waiting on your paper on internationalist perspective in the Middle East, huh? 
No double spacing, single spacing. I know, Mr. Kudenko. Ah, this, this Brandon, he has no concept of how to view Iraq's geostrategy in an international context, right? And, and always too much mop and glow in the bucket with that kid. <laughs> always. Pine Bluff High School. When life gave them lemons, they made lemon-scented floor cleaner. No, we did not make this. This is just mop and glow. That was Allison Manning. Join us next when we visit a classroom that's a mix of mid-century basket weaving, Venezuelan algebra, and an in-depth analysis of Duran Duran's Seven and the Ragged Tiger. It's... It's... And you also have more comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. And music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Thanks, guys. So as I said earlier, Scott Poole will be joining us later in the show. He actually won't be writing a poem during the show as he normally does or teaching us anything at the end of the show. I know it's disappointing, but... You will all get the supreme pleasure of listening to poems that he has spent more than an hour writing. <laughs> so it's a trade-off, but it's worth it. We'll also have the author of Robopocalypse, Daniel Wilson, on a bit later. His book is actually going to be turned into a movie in July of 2013. And you can actually see it as you read the book. It is just this epic, exhilarating, awesomely gory adventure about our technology turning against us and how humankind responds to that threat. And there are a lot of heroes in this book. Um, they're, they're taking on everything from these terrifying little spidery stumper bombs that crawl up your body to face-biting androids and, and Arcos, this omniscient AI who's running the whole thing. And so all through the book, you see people risking their lives to save a friend or a comrade or sometimes even a stranger. And it got me thinking about where people like me are represented in these stories. I would just like to say that I feel like cowards are underrepresented in books like these. <laughs> and not just books, but movies too. Like, you know when the hero and that other guy are facing down the acid-spewing alien and the hero says, you go, save yourself. I'll stay here and I'll fight this thing with a butter knife, some rope, and my girlfriend's scrunchie. It's all I have. <laughs> but you can survive. Tell her I love her. And the other guy says, okay. I'll tell her. Good luck with that whole acid thing. I'm going to go. So I'm the other guy, right? And I think most people think they're the hero, but they're probably the other guy too. Like, for instance, we all love sitting in the exit row of a plane, right? And somehow that extra six inches of legroom increases our enjoyment of the trip by like 600%. I don't know what that math is. But when the flight attendant comes by and asks us whether or not we're willing to accept the responsibilities that come with sitting in an exit row, what do you picture? Are you standing up as the plane is plummeting toward the ocean saying, it's okay, everyone, it's all under control, 
And then when the plane hits the water, you throw the door open and you shepherd the rest of the passengers out, running to the back of the plane, now engulfed in flames, to get little Jessica's teddy bear so she won't be alone on the raft. Is that you? Or like me, are you clinging to the armrest, sobbing uncontrollably and screaming, we're not going to make it. We're never make it. Man wasn't meant to fly. As the other passengers are leaping over you, trying to get past your open laptop to wrench the door open. We all love to see ourselves reflected on screen and in books, so I would just like to put in a request with Hollywood and sci-fi writers, and maybe even with Daniel Wilson himself, that it is time, it's time that they stopped ignoring the plight of the lily-livered, the crybabies, the cream puffs, the wimps. The gutless have voices too, they are just much, much less likely to use them to volunteer for anything. So you can't really hear us, but we're all here. The milksops, the weaklings, the yellow-bellied wusses who cry at the sight of fake blood. Sure, we're weak, but according to an action-adventure book written a really long time ago, we're supposed to inherit the earth or something. So it might behoove you to make us the protagonist every once in a while. All we're here to say is this. We have the $10 to $12.50 it costs to see a movie, too if we're able to get it from our moms. And we demand, well, demand is a really strong word. We would like to respectfully request a little bit of representation, if it's not too much trouble. Thanks. So in 2002, when musician and multi-instrumentalist Rob Bartoletti was diagnosed with Parkinson's, he decided to use his songwriting to increase awareness about the disease. He's organized six benefit concerts called the Shakers Ball, and this year he teamed up with his friend Rod Stroop and Burgerville Records to produce a benefit CD called The Shaker Sessions. The CD feature song is written by Bartoletti and sung by prominent Northwest artists Pete Droge, Fernando, Storm Large, who is currently singing with Pink Martini, Mike Kirkendall, Casey Neal, and our musical guest tonight. Please welcome Rob Stroop and The Blame to Livewire. Ask me why. 
producer on this record with Rob. What made you come into this project and work, work on it with him? Rob's been a friend for a number of years, and uh, he's brought other projects in. Once, once his Parkinson's developed to the level where he wasn't able to perform himself, he started channeling his writing through some other artists in the, in the community, and that's kind of how I met him, producing some of those records. And then uh, he, he was sitting on a whole big group of great songs, and we were just having dinner one night trying to figure out 
what we do with them, you know? And uh, we, we came up with the idea to leverage those songs to bring in local and regional talent and make it a benefit record for Parkinson's causes. And you co-wrote a couple of songs with him. Yeah, I mean, most, most of the songs were his inception, and then um, we kind of reworked them, and I, you know, did some, some co-writing on them kind of on the back end. But yeah, I have some co-writes on the record as well. And you're a producer at Eight Ball Studios locally. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so you've worked on a ton of records. Yes. How is it different when you're working on a project like this that has an external goal as opposed to just music for music's sake? I didn't treat it musically any different, you know. I mean, just just uh, try to make a great record, and uh, the cause is just um, it's icing, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just a cool to be do- to be doing what you do all the time, and then have it also be benefiting something that's really a great cause. What was your favorite part of working on this this one? Um, you know, I mean, it was cool in so many ways, but it was cool because these artists, are, you know, took the, their time out and donated it almost in every case, and I think in every case they donated their time. To, uh, to come record their vocals on the record. So. Well, and also, this is kind of, this is unique because it's a partnership with Burgerville, which, uh, for people who don't live in Oregon, it's a local food chain. How did that partnership happen with Burgerville? It was much later. We had the idea, and we made the record, and then we didn't know how it was going to actually translate to benefit. You know, Rob's worked with Parkinson's um, organizations in Oregon, and we originally thought it was going to work out with them. Um, their charter was such they couldn't handle product, you know. So there's lots of little ins and outs and nuances. But eventually, Rob's patience paid off because Michael Rowe said, I think that might be something Burgerville would be interested in. So, and then it went up the food chain and, and uh, <laughs> so, to, so speak, to speak. Up the and, uh, local sustainable food chain. Yes. Uh, um, free range. That is Portland, Oregon. Environmentally friendly. Right. And so, and these CDs, so, so if you live around the country, we have listeners around the country, uh, you'll have to come to, to Oregon to get one of these CDs because they're only available at Burgerville stores, Yes, right? uh, the initial release is going to be exclusively through Burgerville. Yes. And Washington. And, yes, and Oregon and Washington. Oh, Oregon or, and or Washington yes. to get one of these. Well, the CD is the Shakers Sessions, and uh, you guys are going to come back and play one more song yeah, later Mike, in the show. Mike Kirkendall is going to join us for another one later in the show. Wonderful. Yes. Thanks so much. Rob Stroop of the Shakers Sessions. Music Tonight is brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Rock and Rye. Does this bread contain whole grains and add the flavor of sweet caraway? Yes. Can this bread tune your bass, tease your hair, and teach you the guitar solo to Stairway to Heaven? Not yet, but they are working on it. Dave's Killer Breads, making the world a better place, one loaf of bread at a time. Well, good morning, sleepyhead. (sighs) Hey, Mom. Mom, where are the Cocoa Puffs? Oh, they're expensive, dear. Try the Popo Cuffs. They're just as good. Little chocolate handcuffs? Oh, c- come on, Mom. The, the off-brand cereal is never as good. I think they look delicious. Besides, dear, you're 35 years old. You should be eating Fiber One like your father and me. That's gross. Oh, your mother and I are gross now? Oh, evidently disgusting. I can barely stand to look at myself in the mirror. <laughs> Why? You're not the one who claims to be looking for work, but is actually playing Legend of Zima with your friends in the basement. Legend, Legend of Zelda, Dad, okay? And I am looking for work. In fact, 
I just need 25 bucks today to get resume paper and a new tie. Sorry, all out of cash. I'm not an ATM, son. I'm a man. So. Yeah, I, I know, Dad. A man who periodically enjoys conjugal relations with your mother. Here. Oh, Charles. Oh, God, stop it. Okay, that is it. That's, that's what? I, I am occupying this kitchen. Well, of course you're occupying it, darling. We're all occupying it. Yes, this kitchen is occupado, as they say on the restroom door of Senior Taquitos. No, mm-hmm. enough levity, you guys. There's an important protest going on right now in front of you. We demand. We demand. Better cereal. Better cereal. And a system of government. And a system of government. Who's we? Uh, What are you doing, dear? Well, I'm making a human amplification system because we're not allowed to have bullhorns. Oh, you can have a bullhorn. Yeah, sure. I don't see why you can't have a bullhorn. No, no, enough. I'm going to get my tent. Oh, you should. Uh, Your Star Wars sleeping bag is on the top shelf. I know where it is, Mom. Well, if you're going to camp out, the Coleman Lantern is... Don't try to help me, you guys. We are in this bind because you speculated on the real estate market. You mean the cabin? You love the cabin. I know, but I fell off the top bunk because of your unsafe building practices. You were also drunk. Enough excuses! (laughs) Do you really think it's fair that you make 350 times what I make? You have a paper route, son, and I'm a thoracic surgeon, so yeah, I, I think that's fair. Oh. oh, you know what? I, I'm going to make you some s'mores bars. Oh, will you be camping out on the lawn or in the living room like when you were seven? Look, don't try to decipher our plan, Mom. O-C-C-U-P-Y. What does that spell? Occupy. Oh, that's so good, dear. He was always such a good speller. J-O-B. What does that spell, Brad? Dad, I have a paper route. All right, all right, all right. Well, I'm off to work. Let me know if you need anything. No, no, just stop trying to help. God, you're ruining it. Goodbye, darling. Hey, hey, ho, ho. Goldman Sachs has got to go. Oh, what do you have against the Goldmans? They had us over for Passover last year. They're oh. lovely people. Nice rhyming, though, dear. Guys are never going to get it. Oh, I know, dear. You want some protest eggs? Oh, fine. But, but don't put hot sauce on them, okay? That's too spicy. Okay, my little rebel. You're listening to Livewire, the show that believes variety is the spice of life. We also believe basmati is the rice of life, pepperoni and mushroom is the slice of life, and Heidi is the flice of life. (laughs) Coming up on Livewire, poet Scott Poole, Robopocalypse author Daniel H. Wilson, and more music from the Shaker Session CD. We will be right back.
Our next guest is a man you know well, or at least you think you do. Scott Poole has been the house poet for Livewire for the past two years, but he did actually have a life before us. In addition to authoring two books, The Cheap Seats and Hiding from Salesmen, Scott was the co-founder of the literary festival Get Lit in Spokane and the founding director of Wordstock right here in Portland. Reading from his latest book, The Sliding Glass Door, which was recently featured on Garrison Keillor's Writer's Almanac, please welcome Scott Poole. That's a dream come true right there. I love the tuba. Um, This is for everyone who's unemployed and trying to find work, and you're invariably going to be asked this stupid question. Why do you want to work here? (laughs) Well, I was just up above, not thinking of much, flying overhead in my puttering biplane, enjoying a temporary airy existence of light, silence, and unlimited hope, bound only by fluffy clouds, horizon, and the occasional magnificent mountain peak when my engine suddenly burst into flames. That's when I first became intrigued by the work of your company. Well, more specifically, the largely unobstructed orange color of your company's roof. Despite dragging a tremendous column of black smoke, I spiraled down from 10,000 feet in a somewhat controlled gyre before coming to the softest kiss of an emergency landing that you've ever seen over a fulfillment department. It was such a beautiful touchdown that I was able to walk down your back stairs through receiving, past packing, and right into the velvety cubic walls of your human resources office without so much as a single protest. It's that kind of welcoming attitude that I can really appreciate in a company that may or may not have fire insurance. (laughs) May I put my scarf and goggles on your desk? Champagne. Thank you. Listening to my wife wash dishes. Oh, I know what you're thinking. How typical. The wife has to wash the dishes and you're off writing some damn poem while she does all the work in the house. And I bet you don't even have your shoes on and your pants stink and you expect her to wait on you like some kind of slave. Well, I really don't care if that's what you're thinking. (laughs) Because it won't change the fact that the sound of my wife doing the dishes is one of the most beautiful and comforting sounds in the world. It just is. And before you go jump into conclusions, condemning every one of my poems, maybe I was only listening to her on a tape recorder because she died several years ago after a tragic accident trying to save giant pandas in China. And after you've heard the sound of a loved one being brutally mauled and ripped apart by a giant panda, the sound of that same someone simply washing some dishes is pretty damn amazing. Did you ever think of that, huh? So why don't you back off on the fairness radar for a sec? So for the love of giant pandas and all the holy people trapped in the clouds, I can just finish this damn poem already. Wishy, wish, scritch, scritch, wish, wish. (laughs) 
This is the poem that Garrison Keillor decided should go out across the world. The Bible. Just in case, it's over there. Because you have to have at least one. The part I read the most is the inscription to my wife's grandmother. I imagine God at a book signing, signing her copy. (laughs) Dear Eva, thanks for worshiping. But mainly I consider when she may have held it in her hands a few times at church, a couple confused moments in the bedroom, and one strange time after Mass when she walked to the grocery store and set it for a few seconds on a stack of apples while she inspected the bananas for bruises. This is a a fall poem. How good it feels to die. I was buried yesterday. Yes, maybe I should have been more careful. I was taking a stroll through the graveyard, and this coffin was just nestled there in the ground, and you know it was one of those sleepy fall days where the sun is soft and slants in from the right on a cool carpet of air. And maybe it's those leaves, the shuffling through the graveyard, the whispering that always turns me into a baby, says, just take a nap here before dinner time. Hey, I can't help it if somebody left the lid off. You can't leave this fluffy softness just lying around in a muddy graveyard. I've been writing poems all day and trying to come up with new metaphors for clouds, so many metaphors that it felt like each cloud was sticking a thousand white asses at me. (laughs) And you'd be surprised how comfy a coffin is. I mean, some dead people really have it made. I imagine this is how lunch meat feels in between two pieces of white bread. And I don't know how long I was there, but I woke up in the dark trying to roll over. And I'm not that stupid. I had my cell phone. I knew where I was. You'd be amazed at what great reception the dad get. (laughs) Hi, honey. It's me. Uh, Yeah, I'm at the Lone Fur. Oh, no, not again, she always says. (laughs) Yep, I'm calling from the grave. It's the fresh dirt by the big oak near the road. Call me back if you can't find it. And then I wait, and the best part is always the wait, snuggled inside the dark, listening for shovel taps, knowing those who love you are on their way to bring you back. Thank you. Scott Poole. So the book is The Sliding Glass Door. It's a book. It's your, this is your third book. Third book, yes. So you, you come to Livewire every week, and you have to write a poem in an hour while you're watching the show. How has that changed your writing? Uh, yes, definitely it's getting longer. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be short, like 30-second uh, poems. Um, I never seemed to crack a page, but now... I can't break the two-minute poem. (laughs) I can't go over that either. (laughs) Yeah, just because it's what you're used to writing for this. Yes, yeah. It's its own form, and I'm, like, now stuck in it. (laughs) But I like it. I'm still exploring it. I like it. What what happens to you when you're in a situation like that and you get writer's block at minute 23? 
<laughs> um, it's kind of like you just keep riding, and I tell people it's like driving 500 miles an hour into a cul-de-sac hoping for the best. <laughs> Hopefully someone on stage will say something really good that matches what I'm writing. Yeah, and that happens a lot. And it it's, does. It's amazing how much time it's like, yes, they mentioned a fruit bat. That's exactly what I needed. <laughs> you actually, I mean, you write humorous poetry, and I think that you're, I, I think you're sort of Billy Collins-esque. Where does humorous poetry land in the, in the poetry pantheon? Well, there's like serious poetry, then there's like 50 feet of muck, and then there's humorous poetry. <laughs> and poetry itself is 500 feet below the ocean of the arts, you know, so. But it's a fun little world down there, you know. Jacques Cousteau comes and visits, you know, we have a beer. So you've really chosen, you know, you've, ch you've chosen a path to success. Yes. So this, this Garrison Keillor thing was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just can't wait to compare the two recordings. I would imagine his is going to take 50 to 65 minutes longer to read than yours. <laughs> It made it sound really important and literary. <laughs> and I like that. Let's go to uh, pop culture. A lot, a, lot of, a lot of writers don't really like to put pop culture into their work, but you love to put you know, things like Kellogg cereal and Care Bears into yours. Why do you feel like that's okay to do for you? Um, I think, whether we like to admit it or not, Chewbacca is a lot more important in our lives than Odysseus. <laughs> it's an excellent point. It's a good point to end on. Uh, the book is The Sliding Glass Door. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Poole. That was Scott Poole. More information about his book can be found at colonuspublishing.com. You're listening to Livewire Radio. Radio for people who, when purchasing underwear, choose the variety pack. <laughs> all right, all right, settle in, you guys. Look, we got a big day ahead of us, and I want to get through the morning briefing ASAP. Uh, yes, what is it, Lemansky? Uh, Captain, can you address the donut problem first? So as we all know, someone's been licking the icing off of the chocolate glaze and then just putting them back in the box. Uh, who's ever doing it, knock it off. We're cops, okay, not animals. Internal Affairs is looking into it. We should have a report by Thursday. All right, looks like some bums have started an acapella quartet over off McDougal. Apparently they're fantastic, but some rich people have complained, so you know how it is. Anders, Ewan, Zabachnik cruise over there and break it up. 
And if they start on for the longest time by Billy Joel, call for SWAT. <laughs> Next order of business, we're getting reports that Godzilla was seen headed for the city. Did you say Godzilla, Captain? I'm afraid so, Lemansky. He's due at the strip mall off 49th in about an hour. I'm going to need some volunteers to go over there and, uh, let's see here, uh, shoot their handguns pointlessly into his impenetrable chest, drop your gun a couple of times trying to reload it, and then become immobilized with fear right before being squished by his giant foot. Look, if I don't get a name, I'm just going to pick somebody. Uh, Okay, Myers, thank you. Jeez. All right, next up, two of you need to get in some kind of special tank, fire a missile at him, which won't work, and then look at each other dramatically right before being vaporized by his atomic breath. Yeah, no. Two days from the time. Seriously, guys, this comes with the job. Don't make me out a third. Okay, great. Johnson and Torres be on Park Avenue by 1230. All right, last task. I need an officer to heroically climb his tail and try to drop a bomb down his ear cavity only to slip and plummet to your death in slow motion. Uh, I did it last time. Lemansky? Looking at you, Lemansky. But, Captain, it's my first day, and I just got engaged, and I'm your son. What was that? (sighs) Nothing. All right. Thanks, Lemansky. That is it for today. Uh, Let's get out there and police. Dismissed. Uh, Captain, one more thing. As I fall, should I yell, Godzilla, or just, no? Hell if I know, Lemansky. Improvise. Our next guest is a former guest writer for Livewire, and he may be one of the only New York Times bestselling authors with a PhD in robotics. He's the author of seven books, including How to Survive a Robot Uprising, How to Build a Robot Army, and his latest book, Robopocalypse, was called Terrific Page-Turning Fun by Stephen King, and was recently optioned by DreamWorks for a film to be directed by Steven Spielberg. So it is a book that many Stevens enjoy. Here to discuss writing books for Stevens, please welcome Daniel H. Wilson to Livewire. Hi. Welcome to the show, Daniel. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. Yeah, I was, I was happy with the music that got played this time. It was zany, but, uh, you know, not, uh, not frightening. Like usual. I think I got Ghostbusters or something last time. <laughs> Ghostbusters? Yeah, That's just remember. humiliating. Yeah, well, you know, these days. Right. Uh, so you've clearly had a thing for robots for a while. You do have a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon. What started, what sparked your interest in robotics? I just want to first emphasize it's not sexual in any way. <laughs> the thing I have for uh-huh. robotics. Uh, I don't know. You know, when I was a kid, I, I played with a lot of toys. And there's, there's kind of this pop culture, like, pantheon of all the, you know, the things you can do. You can be a policeman. You can be a, a fireman. You can, you know, there's all this stuff you can do. And then there's robots, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and they're real, you know. And so... As I got older and I started learning that you could actually, you know, build robots for a living, um, that was a no-brainer to me. That, uh, <laughs> that pretty much was the obvious answer, you know? 
So how did you move from actually building robots to writing about building robots? Well, so I was in grad school and I was, uh, you know, doing actual robotics work, which is really hard, as it turns out. It takes a long time <laughs> to build robots. Uh, and you usually only get to build one type of robot, and you have to, you know, specialize. And so as a joke, I wrote a book called How to Survive a Robot Uprising, which was me making fun of, of all the Hollywood scenarios where robots kill people because they typically don't, you know, and I was... <laughs> I was learning that, you know, and, and we were all kind of, we all, as roboticists, we all kind of felt like, you know, we had a bad reputation out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I wrote that book to, to make, you know, to make fun of it all. And then, of course, I, I wrote Robopocalypse and, and joined the, you did. <laughs> the dark you, side. You, and, you and totally just, did. It's a book that just makes fun of me, myself. <laughs> I'm just making fun of future Daniel. So there was past Daniel, young, hip, in his 20s, cool, making yeah. fun of me. This is your Bible of self-deprecation. Yeah. It's done quite well. Um, and just to give people an overview of the book, uh, an AI or artificial intelligence computer ha gains sentience and robots turn against humans. And eventually there's an all-out war, um, and this AI, Arcos, is the leader of this war. Um, what are the humans getting in the way of for Arcos? Yeah, so, you know, it's got a very typical sort of robots attack beginning because I wanted people to pretty much understand, you know, what it was going to, what I was getting them into. And with a title like Robopocalypse, I think you kind of know whether you're going <laughs> to... So what is this? Is this like about 18th century painters or what is that? Uh, so Robopocalypse. Um, and so, but from there, I had a lot of fun and drew on my background, you know. And so the, the bad guy, this really smart computer... Uh, is not really that concerned about people. You know, one thing I've always noticed in a lot of science fiction, the robots always want to be people, or they want to kill all the people, but it's people, 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 you know? Robots are better than that, you know? <laughs> I mean, this thing's a lot smarter than any person that ever lived, so it's got its own goals that are, that are beyond just worrying about people. And so one of the things that it wants to do, one of the things it realizes immediately, is that... Um, there's lots and lots of rocks bouncing off each other all throughout the solar system and outer space and, you know, the infinity, but there's not a lot of life, you know, and it's, and it's really smart, so I figured, what would a really smart creature be interested in? And I thought, you know, knowledge. And if you look at something that's alive, uh, you see that it's got a lot of information packed into it. It's got, you know, DNA and all these patterns that are tightly packed into living things. When you compare it to a rock, it's sort of like, well... The worm is much more interesting. And so we're killing a lot of worms, you know? So they're essentially <laughs> just wanting to study human beings. Yeah, well, just wanting to slow us down a little bit. Um, and also, you know, I don't want to give away the ending, but ultimately, you know, it's not about really killing us all. It's also, it's kind of ultimately ends up being about creating a new world where uh, human beings kind of have to share the, the mantle, you know? We're not the, the coolest kids on the block anymore, and there's a, there's a new living creature that's around that needs respect. Yeah. You're listening to Livewire, and I'm talking to Daniel H. Wilson, the author of Robopocalypse. I, I found it interesting, actually, that, that in this book where some really terrifying things happen, one of the scariest things for me was the doll. <laughs> um, can you explain how the robots sort of begin to take over? Yeah, that's another place where I had a lot of fun because it all is, 
in the near future. I mean, there's no robots that come from outer space or back in time or anything. This is all like, uh, you know, your cell phone. Like if you have a, a Siri, you know, the little talkie lady, that, that's roboticist terminology, uh, that, lives inside, it's very complex. that lives inside your iPhone. <laughs> well, I mean, every time you speak to her, your voice is recorded and it goes into a database and it's totally possible that, you know, that information is out there. Um, all the new cars have more and more autonomous features. They can park themselves. They can drive themselves more and more. Google has cars that can drive themselves. I mean, that's not even, that, that's something that's done already. Um, and so, you know, all of this happens just about like 10 or 15 years in the future, and it's just all the technology that we're actually quite used to uh, just turns against us, you know, because there's not really enough predator drones to threaten everybody in Kansas, you know? <laughs> but they've all got cell phones, you know? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I grew up in Oklahoma, and we had them there, so. <laughs> well, in- Just extrapolating here. In chapter one, Arcos, the computer tells the doctor who created him, I am your God. Is this book for you a book about our relationship to technology? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 100%, every, basically everything I write is about our relationship to technology, except for brojitsu, which is just your relationship with your brother. But, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was the art um, of sibling rivalry. And the reason I like robots is because it's great. I mean... Dealing with technology is something we all do daily. I mean, it's, it's part of everybody's life. But whenever you have killer robots, it's great because you can externalize all that technology and really look at our relationship to it in a very simplified manner. It's like, it's evil, I hate it, it's trying to kill me. You know? And it's like, and there you go. And then with this book, it starts out kind of like that. Like the technology is just attacking and it's very simple. But then as the book progresses, people realize they're going to have to, you know, use this technology in order to defeat the technology. And then it's like, you know, just more complicated and just like life. I was really interested in what, what happened at the Osage Nation. Osage. Osage yeah. na- Nation. Uh, why, if something like this goes down where robots are attacking everyone, why is an Indian reservation a good place Well, so I, uh, I grew up in Oklahoma. I'm part Cherokee, and it's always been... I grew up in the Cherokee Nation, which is really just sort of, you know, lines on a map. Um, and it's always been really interesting to me that there are all of these sort of autonomous governments that are spread throughout the United States, and they're little governments, but they have... Uh, there's tribal police, and there's, and this is not a reservation situation either. This is just, there's lines on a map that say, this is Cherokee Nation. If you want, you can get your license plate from uh, the, the state government, or you can get it through the Cherokee Nation if you're Cherokee. And so these little governments are all fully functioning, and they're small, and they're rural. And so for me, I'm thinking if there's technology, it's going nuts. The urban places are going to be dangerous because that's where technology is concentrated. And it's based on past results. I wouldn't really expect the government to come save me very quickly. I wouldn't, like, for instance, if there was a robot uprising, like, climb on top of my roof of my house and be like, help, Obama. I just, not a surefire way to uh, make it through. Maybe you could, I don't know. But, uh, but anyway, there's, there's these local governments that are able to keep functioning even when everything else falls apart. And, and to me, that was one of the most interesting themes of the book is that they don't become cloistered and they don't uh, reject new people that show up. They actually you know, let everybody, all the survivors, um, come together come and try to survive. Yeah. This has been an amazing experience for you. 
um, because you've actually gotten to Spielberg is going to direct your film. Um, you actually got to go uh, go see him and visit him in his office and talk to him. It just seems like you've had a lot of sort of surreal. You've 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 said that you're a, a sort of a self-proclaimed film nerd. And uh, is there is there one experience you've had during all of this that you would run back to the kid Daniel Wilson and be like, "Dude, the coolest thing happened." <laughs> There have been a lot of really cool things that I've been lucky enough to have happen. Um, but, you know, I got, recently I, I went to Comic-Con, which in itself was pretty crazy, to talk about Robopocalypse to people that really like that kind of robot action, just like me. And, uh, and while I was there, I actually got to run into to Spielberg, and he was there with Peter Jackson to do, like, a 1010 talk. And so I'm in this room, and it's like I just met... Spielberg again, and, and, and Peter Jackson, I shook hands with him, and I'm like totally freaking out, and then they decide that they have to walk across Comic-Con to get to uh, where they're going to do their talk, and, and I like get to kind of like roll with the, them, <laughs> like walking, and, and they're not, you know, taking elevators, there are like security guys and stuff, you know, like this, with the earpiece and everything, and I mean... This is the epicenter of where these guys are famous, and they're already really famous. I'd like go hang out in like the Amazon jungle with Spielberg, and it would be no big deal. But this is like through the middle of Comic Con, and it was amazing to watch the people reacting to uh, to this because there's like this sort of force field around these two really famous gentlemen, and you're invisible. Like you could take your clothes off, you could do anything, you could just walk around, whatever. And, and no one sees you because you're just watching this sh- shockwave of people going, oh. <laughs> 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 you know? and, and, and that's not even the best part. Like the, the, the best, best part is the people that are looking at their cell phones and they have no idea. And they, they miss the whole thing. Right past and it's like, that's Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg and you're so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's, you know, the, kind of the tap on the shoulder, what did I miss? You know, kind of thing. But anyway, that, that was... That would have been a pretty cool thing to go tell myself about. Yeah, I mean, I I read that you wanted to write uh, science fiction novels when you grew up, and it seems like it's pretty much as cool as you you probably thought it was going to be. I'm having a good good time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, you're working on another book right now, correct? Yeah, my next novel will be out uh, in June of next year. All right, we're looking forward to it. This book is Robopocalypse. The author is Daniel Wilson. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much. You're listening to LiveWire right now, and we appreciate it. If you have a show and would like us to listen to it, we'll be happy to. (laughs) It's a two-way street, people. We will be right back.
Welcome back to Livewire. Well, this has uh, been really fun. It has. It totally, totally has. You are a charmer. <laughs> so I've been told by, like, a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> well, uh, I don't mean to be too forward, but uh, I hope we can do this again. Of course. Of course we can. I think you're, I just, you know, you're great. <laughs> you're great. <laughs> I'm so glad because, you know, I'm sitting here thinking how great you are. Oh, so. yay <laughs> for that. Oh, um, it's just that, ah, oh, this is awkward, but I have been dumped like really hard before. And I just feel like I should let you know that I, I sometimes have a hard time letting my guard down. Okay, well, I think I can handle that. Good. So, uh, would it be all right if I kissed you? What? <laughs> of course it would. <laughs> God, of, of course, yes. Uh, okay, so, um, <laughs> okay. Uh, uh. No! 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 Uh. No! Hey! What the? Ow! God. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. What was that? I'm so... I teach a self-defense class, and sometimes I just... You know, I can't get out of that mode. Oh, God, I feel terrible. I'm, I'm pretty sure you broke my nose. No. If I wanted to break it, I would have broken it. Um, oh, okay. Uh, well, all right. God, I guess I could walk you to your door. Or... That would be nice. Yes. Well, uh, just... aside from the broken nose... Sprained. Uh, sprained nose. Right. This sprained nose, this was really fun. For me, too, you know, I, I'd really like to do it again. Yeah, me, too. Yeah, well, uh, here we are. Again, I am, I am so sorry about your face and stomach and knees and ribs. I promise, if you try to kiss me again, it'll be totally fine. Really? Definitely. All right, well, that's a challenge I'm willing to take. <laughs> uh, just watch the nose. I will. <laughs> okay. Right. No! Stop! Hey! No! Ah! Oh, God, are you okay? Uh, I don't know. I can't tell if I'm lying in blood or mud. No, no, that's definitely my blood. Oh, God, it's just a reflex. Are you wearing brass knuckles? They go with my necklace. I am really sorry. Okay, I don't think that we should date, okay? You seem to have some issues, and I don't have any health insurance. You. Is that an anvil above your door? You can never be too careful. Yes, yes, you can be too careful. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna go. Can I help you? No, 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 don't, don't touch me. Don't touch me. Well, at least shake my hand. All right, fine. A rape whistle? Seriously? Sorry, it's sorry. Oh, I'm getting the hell out of here. Ah. Is that a? Spring-loaded tranquilizer dart with a trigger mechanism in the front gate? Yeah. I gotta start letting people in. And now with another song from the Shaker Sessions Benefit CD, please welcome back Rob Stroop and the Blame featuring Mike Kirkendall.
was a day of reckoning today was a day of reckoning for him the fallout of all his actions finally ushered in it was a day of reckoning for him today he wandered to a house attracted by a sign he read ask one question and you will not be denied woman met him at the door her face an amber hue and with a toothy grin she waved him in and told him what to do it was a day of reckoning today it was a day of reckoning for him to fall out of all his actions finally Ask what you will, she said, if you're ready for the truth. She sat down and closed her eyes and had him sit down too. He asked when he would find the one, the lover of his dreams. She smiled and said, today the things are are Ralph Huntley, Reed Wallsmith, and Jim Brunberg. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville, introducing Burgerville Records and their debut CD, Shaker Sessions, featuring prominent Northwest artists and benefiting the Brian Grant Foundation and Parkinson's Disease Research. CDs available in all Burgerville restaurants starting November 15th. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for radio theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson with sound effects by David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, and Tynan DeLong. 
Faces for Radio Theater is directed by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Scott McLeod. Stage management by Mark Bauck. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Von Drele and Ralph Huntley. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.